On August 22, 1996, 22-year-old Debbie Dorian was discovered bound, gagged, raped, and murdered in her apartment. Her father was the one to have made the horrific discovery, and to this day, her killer has never been apprehended, and her case has gone cold. However, he did leave behind his genetic marker, his DNA. Though he would lay dormant for nearly three years, he did strike again, raping at least seven more women in the Visalia, California area, linked to all of those crimes through his DNA. But Debbie would be the only known victim to have died at his hands. With DNA technology having advanced by leaps and bounds over the last 22 years, as well as some recent, very high-profile cases in California that had long been cold being solved, it is our hope to shine a light on Debbie's case, to bring this killer and rapist to justice, and a measure of closure for Debbie's family and friends who have waited much too long for answers. With the blessings of Debbie's mother, Sarah, and the help and guidance of her best friend, Katina, California Dreaming and Orbital Jigsaw are bringing you their story in episode 64, The Unsolved Murder of Debbie Dorian. I hope you're joining me. I hope you are getting safe, getting yourself settled in, and getting ready for another episode of the Baked and Awake podcast. Uh, as I said, welcome back, everyone, and thanks for being here with me today. I'm your host, Steve, and if this is your first time checking out the podcast, um, please keep in mind that, obviously, as you just heard, we smoke here on the show. We dab, we smoke joints rip bong rips you name it um 
I'm an adult cannabis user in a legal part of the country here in the United States. We're recording from Seattle, Washington. Uh, I personally happen to work in the cannabis industry here in Washington State as well. So we get into it on the cannabis topic here. We chop it up about cannabis news and lifestyle, all sorts of educational information. Uh, and we have fun with our strain of the week. This week's strain of the week is going to be the Pineapple Express from our very own Garden Wheat Plus Tacoma. Uh, and I'm excited to get to that here in just a little while. But we just took a little dab to get started here. Prime the pump, so to speak. Uh, and getting ready to jump into our episode content. But wanted to get that little disclaimer out of the way because... I like to remind folks right up top, if you happen to come upon this in the midst of your workday, now might not be a bad time to put an earbud in, you know, or press pause. Check this out on your ride home, you know, on your commute home, something like that. Um, but uh, we'll try not to embarrass you too badly if you do elect to let us play out loud uh, at your desk or workstation, wherever you may be. Hello, everybody. Hello, passersby. Hello, co-workers and friends. Greetings to you all. Let's see what our notes say about the plan for today, shall we? And I'm going to make an adjustment here, so bear with me. There we go. Just touching our mic boom a little bit so we can sit up a little straighter. So we took a break from our narratives uh, and our explorations of the Nag Hammadi scriptures. Uh, a couple episodes back, I did two episodes back-to-back on that, and I want to say that was uh, like episode 55 and 56 of the podcast. You'll find them as Nag Hammadi scriptures take two, because I really blew the audio on the first uh, of those two episodes, released it, and then remixed the whole thing and re-recorded it the next day and, and pulled the old audio and put up the fresh. So that's take two. And then it will be followed by the Nag Hammadi Library, part two. So those are just a couple. Just, you know, scroll down in your podcast app where you found this, and you'll see those both coming up. But we took a break from them the last couple of episodes to do two little holiday, Halloween, spooky uh, style episodes back to back where uh, we told sort of old horror tales. Uh, the first was The Rime of the Ancient Mariner by T.S. Coleridge and the, excuse me, S.T. Coleridge, Samuel Taylor Coleridge. And uh, the second episode, the most recent and the last episode that you'll see in your list below this one, we read A Ghost Story by Mark Twain, um, also known as Samuel Clemens. So we did two stories by two Samuels back to back there on the last couple episodes, and I really hope you enjoyed those. I worked hard on just sort of creating a feel and a sound uh, that went along with the storytelling of those two episodes for the holiday. Um, and there's no reason not to still listen to those now just because Halloween has passed. So if you've missed them, go back and check them out. Um, and uh, I'd love to hear your feedback on them because if we have fun with episodes like that and you like that kind of content for a change of pace from time to time and I'm treating it respectfully in your opinions, then you let me know and I'll be that much more inclined to continue to try stuff like that out for us. So uh, it was super fun for me, obviously, as you can tell as I'm talking to you about it. So um, I enjoyed it. I hope you guys enjoy it as well. 
Uh, so yeah, before we move on too far, I want to remind you, you can find my show and several other wonderful shows at damagedgoodsinc.com, the independent podcast network that I'm a proud member of. And you can find Damaged Goods, the show there, Daddy Issues. And needless to say, uh, not to mention my boy Clay Miles with his uh, basement show YouTube channel, Clay Time in the Basement. Pretty sure Clay pushes that out as an RSS feed as well. I think I've got that subscribed in my podcatcher, but I usually catch Clay on YouTube because he does a video uh, when he does his show, and it's usually pretty hilarious to watch him. So uh, check them all out. Uh, visit me over at Patreon if you would like to support the show uh, that way, and I've talked about it here and there before, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it now today, but... I deeply love and appreciate the support that I am receiving on there. I'd also like to thank my newest supporter, Nick, uh, who threw down just the other day through like, I think he might be my first donation through my website at bakedinawake.com using the PayPal button because it looked like that was a different different type of uh, payment that came through than Patreon. Nick, you're the man. You know I see you, brother. I'm so glad you're listening. Uh, Nick's an old, old friend, so that's super cool. Um, the Patreon uh, for the show can be found at patreon.com forward slash baked and awake show and to wrap up on that you can support the show for a buck a month if you want to 12 bucks a year less than the price of uh, you know going bowl for bowl with me in the cipher and give me a vote of confidence that puts a spring in my step like you wouldn't believe and help me begin to put the seeds in place for the resources that the show continually already consumes. And it's no problem. This is my thing. I started this. Nobody put a gun to my head and asked me to start doing this podcast. So I'm all about it. And I'm all about powering it myself for as much as I can, as well as I can, for as long as I can. If I never make a dime off of it, I'll do it for as long as it makes sense. And as long as I feel like I'm maybe getting better and bringing more value to you guys who are listening... Um, but if we get the Patreon going and we get it robust, I have a couple of goals laid out there for things that I would like to do with the podcast field trips, for example, um, here in the local area in the Pacific Northwest to visit notable sites. You want to see me go to Hanford and check that out? I would love to go. And I mean, I'll probably go anyway. I've I've been on that waiting list before. You got to literally get on a waiting list to go visit the Hanford power plant, the areas that they let you tour. Um, and you know, it's every year, uh, a lottery is held for the number of uh, visitors that are going to be allowed to go to that. Um, you want to see me go out and visit Mel's hole, the environs around it, you know, reaching back in the Wayback machine to an early episode, go back around episode three, four, five, you'll find, I think it's episode five and six. You'll find my episodes about Mel's hole an amazing, crazy, alleged, bottomless pit way out in central Washington in the hills around Pullman somewhere we'll go try to find that we'll go see how close we can get we'll go see if we can't get turned around by guys in black jeeps and weird quasi army regalia it's a good time so that's what's up with Patreon it's about engaging with me more directly um, it's about two-way communication, about future show topics and things like those field trips. And obviously, it's about slowly getting to a place where maybe the podcast in a couple of years might even just sort of pay for itself, you know? 
that would be a, a wonderful outcome for the show. Um, we'll see if we can earn that from you guys. I'm trying every week. I'm trying to earn that from you. I'm not asking you for this because I'm entitled to it or I expect it or I think this is the best way to go about any of this. This is what we're trying right now. That's how we're trying to keep it going, how we're trying to build it up. So uh, email me. Talk to me about that and why you hate it and what better ways I could build the show and what I should be talking about to you week in and week out anyway. The email address is talk to us at bakedandawake.com. And that baby's in my pocket right alongside the day job email. It comes to me no matter where I am. So get at me and I promise you I'll reply with alacrity. So, all right, that's enough housekeeping, right? You know, rate, review, favorite it, subscribe to it, share it, please. Um, you know, those iTunes reviews are great. I haven't checked them in a little while. I'll check them very soon and um, update and thank not out of obligation but out of sheer happiness those folks who do choose to take a moment and go find the itunes review and, and drop one for us um, all right i think it's time to smoke this joint and talk about our story um so we've got pineapple express on our hands let me before we light it give you the the poop on some Pineapple Express. And we'll just run a real time, real time, you guys search here. Don't do that a lot of times. Try to stay ahead of that for you and have it up. Okay, so I knew this and I, I forgot, and that's kind of why I was being blase about Pineapple Express. I just wanted to peep it again. And we're just peeking at leafly.com. Link will be in the show notes on this, of course. Uh, Pineapple Express is a heavily sativa-leaning hybrid, uh, usually, if your Pineapple Express is representative. Um, I expect this one to be. I've smoked a little bit of this already previously, and it definitely um, is. Uh, ours does have enough base from the uh, train wreck side of things to help uh, mellow out the uh, head buzz that the Hawaiian hits you with so it's a hawaiian and train wreck cross um train wreck itself is a hybrid um i could look that up for you and tell you what that is a hybrid of if you if you care to know um mexican and thai so they are yeah but see they were bred with afghani indicas to produce train wreck so it's mexican and thai sativas went into that but the afghani indicas are what are i think providing most of the balance to this because the hawaiian when we go and look at that, you'll see, I think that's a land race sativa strain. Mostly sativa, they call it a hybrid. So, but sativa, piled on sativa, piled on sativa, but you just mix a little Afghan in there and it'll save your life, right? And that's what makes Pineapple Express uh, probably as popular as it is, is that subtle, nuanced um, expressions of the types of strains that went into creating it uh our pineapple express is a really fun stony high that hits immediately and then 
uh, mellows out, gets out of the way, and just sort of lingers on the ribs and in the chest and in the body as it as it moves on. So um, I'm sure if I rolled up big cannon-sized, huge, unnecessary joints uh, like I like to do with my Indicas sometimes of uh, the Pineapple Express, I might live to regret it because as those of you who have listened to the show for a little while probably know, I don't, you know, always play super well with uh, strong sativa-leaning strains and going hard in the paint with them because I'm just an indica person in that respect and that's overly simplistic. Uh, It's gross oversimplification of what's probably happening to me and a misunderstanding uh, on certain levels of what's probably happening to me. It's a very general rule. It's a best practice that I employ is I choose indica-leaning hybrids because they tend to take me down, hit me in a more predictable fashion i'd rather run the risk of getting a little drowsy and having to go brew a cup of tea or a cup of coffee to pep back up if i went a little too far uh then feeling all you know like when you know these are the things that i feel in my head when the sativa gets a hold of me so um but i'm playing with them and as i always say to everybody don't be afraid just smoke accordingly right so What I did with my Pineapple Express joint this morning was I actually rolled it uh, at a reasonable size, not overly big. I used a smaller rolling machine that I have here on the desk and just made a nice little clean, perfect cylinder, probably a grammar. It was probably a gram joint. And um, went ahead and wrapped it with a uh, section of paper that I cut from the longer paper that I cut down to fit into the rolling paper. And I took like this two inch long section and smeared it with what um, some of my remaining Goldline ACDC uh, hash oil, right? And because uh, it's got a nice, soft, like almost terp saucy consistency, this oil. Um, ACDC, as you may recall, it's been a strain of the week in the past and it is a, CB, a high CBD strain. So I'm actually hoping that the CBDs proclivity to mellow out your high uh, from, you know, it mitigates to a small extent the THC entering your system, uh, will actually further balance this sativa indica, you know, line that we're trying to thread with this hybrid uh, and the desired high that I want to get out of it while I'm sitting here speaking on the mic and, and talking to you folks. So... That was just something I thought I'd try just for fun. And, it, you know, these usually taste good, right? A twax joint or an infused joint is usually uh, pretty fun. I like that I was able to use my whole paper that I took out of the book. And today I fucked with uh, a cool paper, by the way. Excuse me. Um, these are neat. Look for these if you ever see them at the store. It's curved papers. So curved King Slims is what I had, and I cut down a King Slim. And, um, you know, as they say on the top of the book, they're easy to roll. I I went ahead and fooled around with the little rolling machine because I have my whole tray and all my little toys sitting right in front of me here. So um, I used the machine. But they are indeed pretty nice to roll with when you're out, you know, out and about and rolling a joint like you really usually end up rolling a joint like on the side of a fucking sidewalk somewhere huddled up against a bush (laughs) trying to get it done before you're you know getting wherever your destination is um 
So, uh, like the Randys, uh, this is another attempt by a paper to make itself more convenient for you to do the rolling process. And it's just something about that um, curved edge of the paper when you uh, you would like any uh, normal paper have your gum side up and facing you. And the curved edge would be the lower edge that's closer to your body. Yeah, the... And uh, basically, when you're rolling up with your thumbs with your payload into the paper, that center part of your joint that sometimes looks prego if you don't get it tucked in just right when you get it started, that's where you're going to start the curved paper, and it tucks right in a little nicer than a straight paper will, right? Because you go to that first part of the joint right in the middle, get that curve going, roll it, and then you can work your way out from it. You get the idea. It rolls pretty nicely. So, yeah, you'll see them. They're in like a blue pack with a little gray stripe along the top. You can also find them, you know, curvedpapers.com, right? So they literally, this is their whole game. (laughs) This is curved papers. And yeah, try them out sometime. They're pretty fun. All right. More than enough talking about weed for the moment. Let's do some smoking of it. Okay. We're lit. Let's get to it. So, those last couple of episodes about the Nag Hammadi Library were really all about the early days of Christianity. How different they were in many ways from the modern religion practiced by I believe more people in the world today than any other. I'm not sure Christianity or Islam leads really. Um, I know it's not far behind one or the other. I feel like Christianity is the, the biggest religion in the world these days though. Those books, the Nag Hammadi Codices and a few, very few other books like them in the world have of recent decades drastically impacted our picture of early Christianity. There are hints in the methods employed in the construction of the codices and the translations of older books from the Corpus Hermeticum that were found amongst the holy Hebraic texts at Nag Hammadi that gave insight into early efforts to shape a narrative through alterations, in some cases, of ancient texts in the course of translation. So to the modern reader, the modern person researching topics like this. See, I have to like tread carefully because I don't want to characterize myself as an academic or a biblical scholar. I'm far from that. I'm a lay person with an interest in this topic. Nevertheless, it looks to me like what I would characterize today as propaganda, to use a more conspiratorial bit of jargon, a psyop, in the case of 
what we were referring to there, I believe it was a copy of Plato's Republic that was being translated into, I'm not sure what language, Coptic. I, well, it was being written out in Coptic. The Republic would have been written in Greek, probably, originally. It was being changed in the course of the translation, though. I don't know exactly specifically what was being done to it, but the, the text was being fucked with, and the integrity of the original version of the document, based on verifiable older copies of it from the region of the world where the Republic came from, we know that the copy in the Nag Hammadi library was being altered. My point there is that I'm setting us up for a place where we can suspend our disbelief of the possibility that the church, that the government, that the them, whoever they or them might be, who's people in power, people controlling information, whenever they've existed, wherever they've existed, that there's a possibility that in the case of handed down information of any kind today, that would be multifaceted from our sacred glowing rectangles in all forms, computers and mobile devices, and the many social media outlets that we rely on these days instead of news outlets to provide us with our daily digest of headlines and what we should care about. Um, every other, you know, mass media broadcast, you name it, right? We, we go into this all the time here. I went out, though, and we're going to light it back up with the blowtorch, because even though I own 400 lighters, I don't know where one is right now. The old dab torch to the rescue. In the case of the Nag Hammadi Codices, the Gospel of Thomas, some of the other Gospels that are intact and, and in partial form there, we believe those books to be older and more authentic, more correct than some later versions of those texts and versions of uh, those books uh, that have been stored and preserved elsewhere in the world down through history, but certainly not as old as them. So this doesn't always work this way, but... Or does it? What do you mean, Steve? Well, the Nag Hammadi Codices set us up to believe even more in a certain type of historical Jesus, one who is, albeit very different than that uh, whom we see in modern depictions of the Caesar, you know, Borgia, uh, Borgia's son's uh, likeness, instead of the real, you know, very likely much more Middle Eastern uh, visage of Jesus. And the render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, turn the other cheek, be obedient in this lifetime with the promise of your reward in the promised heaven in the afterlife. Jesus. The Gospel of Thomas, Jesus is the Jesus who says, I do not come to bring peace, I come with the sword. You know, I come to, you know, divide houses. One will stand against the other, and they will be alone. That was a very different 
early Jesus that was being presented to faithful Messianic Jews in this region at the time. We had two crucial central portions to the Jewish culture at this time, and that is adhesion to the word of the Talmud, the Quran, um, excuse me, uh, and and that is like strict observance to the word and literal observance of the word and a strong belief in a savior, a returning savior who will come to liberate the Jewish people from their oppressors in past history, the Egyptians, and in the more recent time, the time of Jesus, the Romans, the Caesars. We've got Instead of that story this week, we take that side route, we follow that vein opened up, that crack opened up with the copy of Plato's Republic found at Nag Hammadi, and asks ourselves, well, what do we really know about even the Jesus of the Gospel of Thomas. How legit is he? Is Has he been fiddled with? <laughs> More than we already know he has. Well, that brings us to, finally, my notes and our link to <clears throat> the actual homepage for the documentary film itself called Caesar's Messiah. So we are going to caesarsmessiahdoc.com where we're going to read a synopsis written by them themselves, by the folks who produced this documentary film that um, we're referencing now and that I'll provide a link for you in the show notes for. That in short, tells us that Jesus was one of these psyops. Jesus was a creation out of whole cloth, and he is built on a couple of archetypes, one being historical, existing, messianic archetypes like our friend Moses from the Old Testament, among others, um, and from historical, human, contemporary figures from the contemporary time and the near past of the time when the New Testament books and the canon were written. Okay, let's remember that the New Testament books purported dates of original publication are alleged. There, We don't have a first edition gospel of any of the New Testament uh, um disciples, um, the apostles, excuse me, nor any of the other books that have been included, really any of the books in the canon. That's our modern Old Testament and New Testament Bible. So 
Pineapple Express. I, I let it go out again. I think the ACDC is helping me uh, not get too cracked out on the sativa, but we're going to set it down for just a minute and continue reading. I'm going to get into a we'll start reading, actually. So I've been freewheeling a little bit here for you. So we're going to read their synopsis of the, of the documentary. Um, I'm going to let you seek the documentary out and, and watch it yourselves. You can watch it on YouTube. It's readily available at this point because this came out just a few years ago now. I think the book came out in 2012 or 2013, and the movie was um, published in 2014 or so. Um, it's very nicely done, very well produced, um, almost feature length. It's, you know, like an hour and a half or more long. So we won't do that here. But let's read the synopsis. The origin of the Christian religion has been a subject steeped in mystery for nearly 2,000 years. Who was Jesus? Is he a historical character? Who wrote the Gospels? Why are they written in Greek? Why did they have a pro-Roman and anti-Semitic perspective? And let's remember that, of course, as I mentioned a little while ago, and this is my commentary, we today have the render unto Caesar, who is Caesar's. What is Caesar's? Jesus. We have today a Jesus who is betrayed by one of his own and convicted by a court of Jewish judges and sentenced to death for being too heretical. And they rejected him as their Messiah, right? Why was the religion headquartered in Rome, right? The Vatican's in Rome to this day. The Roman conspiracy to invent Jesus. Caesar's Messiah is a documentary based on the best-selling religious studies book by Joseph Atwill. Atwill is one of a number of scholars today from all around the world who are questioning the historic facts behind these mysterious origins of Christianity. When examining the actual story of this era, Many of the answers provided by the church do not hold up to rigorous scrutiny. No doubt, Christianity has done a lot of good for the world, but a lot of bad has come from its most dogmatic believers, who create wars, hatred, and other harm under the disguise of religion. In studying how Christianity emerged, the seven controversial Bible scholars featured in the film agree that it was used as a political tool to control the masses of the day and is still being used this way today. So you guys have heard some of this before, right? Like I said, this is that whole point that has been raised about, and I think that was one of the Da Vinci Code, uh, you know, early... Uh, facts that they share or trivias and we certainly saw it in like zeitgeist back in the day however much you agree or disagree with that film they pointed out that the depictions the popular depictions in western um christianity of jesus these days that we've seen for you know a couple few hundred years now uh date back to the borgias and uh when cesare borgia wanted to well did indeed impose his will and basically replaced all the extant icons of Jesus of the era with this image and decreed that, you know, to be the only sanctioned visage or representation of Jesus, those like it, those that followed that tradition, 
uh, that would be tolerated and allowed. And older art was destroyed and older art was altered and uh, censored and revised, ruined, uh, obfuscated, etc. So. For example, support for the wars in the Middle East is preached to evangelical Christians as a way to speed up the coming of the end of days. Maybe we need to expand the possible answers about how Christianity originated, and deeper questions need to be asked. Maybe we need to examine what political motives were behind the formation of the Christian religion. The documentary begins with a brief history of the political and religious climate of Judea in the first century CE, common era, the era during which Christianity emerged. Judea was occupied by the Roman Empire, which required them to worship Caesar as a god. The Jews found this blasphemous, and they waged constant rebellions against the empire. Their religious scriptures prophesied that a militaristic warrior messiah would defeat the Romans and lead the Jews to liberation. A string of numerous messiahs presented themselves to lead the people in a war against Rome, only to be defeated and crucified. A customary Roman punishment for insurgents of the day. However, the Roman government was growing weaker from over a century of increasingly corrupt rule by the Julio-Claudian dynasty. The last emperor of this lineage being Nero, who was bankrupting the empire with his self-indulgence. In their greatest victory, the Messianic Jews finally succeeded in burning Rome and driving the Romans out of Judea. This caused Nero to call upon his best military men, the Flavians, Vespasian, and his son Titus, to crush the rebellion for good. Flavians succeeded not only in destroying the Jewish towns of Galilee and their temple in Jerusalem, but after Nero was deposed and committed suicide, they seized the throne through a military coup and took over reign of the Roman Empire itself. Yeah. <laughs> Handled it. Under the Flavians, I guess Nero was a pretty soft target by then. Under the Flavians, the empire flourished, and many great monuments were built, including the famous Colosseum. Interesting. So that was a Flavian monument. Maybe a bunch of the monuments we see today are actually theirs. In order to pacify the Jewish rebellion, they captured and burned all the Jews' scriptures. Bucked it right up. It's around this time that a new literature emerged with the story of a very different Jewish Messiah. One who preached, as they say here, give to Caesar what is Caesar's turn the other cheek, and, and I forgot this one earlier, love your enemy. So this maps right back to the reasons why things like the scriptures might have been buried in the first place and hidden away. Let's light it one more time because I'm not, I'm not being random and crazy enough for you, right? The second half of the documentary 
focuses on the documents the Flavians left behind, which prove their authorship of the Gospels. The Bible scholars deconstruct the Gospels and the character Jesus, showing that they are based on archetypes found in the ancient pagan mystery schools and in earlier Jewish literature. Much of the teachings of Christianity are traced back to the writings of Philo of Alexandria, who was combining Jewish scripture with Greek pagan beliefs, and Stoicism, a philosophy promoted by the Flavians. When the Flavians seized control of the Roman Empire, they needed to legitimize their rule. So they had their Jewish court historian Josephus create a large body of work which became the only official history we have of the Roman-Jewish War. Bible scholar Joseph Atwill noticed many parallels between this historic account of the war and the events in the life of Jesus in the Gospels. Throughout his study of the ancient Greek texts and his discovery of an antiquated Hebrew literary genre, Okay, a type of literature that was popular at the time. All right, and they, they get into this in the documentary. So I'm just like introducing this concept for you guys because they've got a great presentation of it that you're going to want to watch and listen to. He found dozens of parallels between the Jesus story and the war history that occurred in the exact same sequence. This shows that the events of Jesus's life which supposedly took place 40 years earlier, were actually all dependent on the events in the military campaign of the Roman Caesar Titus Flavius. They go on here, ancient texts were much more allegorical, multi-layered, and complex than today's writing. And when you read the Gospels and the histories of Josephus side by side, a new meaning arises, which reveals the authors of the Gospels to be the Roman Flavian Caesars their co-conspirators, and their literary team. So I mentioned it, like, I think last episode, let's remember books and, you know, scrolls and anything that was printed, carved, recorded. We didn't have audio, right? They didn't have tapes. They didn't have video. This was it. This was 4K TV. So they were going to impart all the richness, all the detail, every level of, you know, pixelation that they could drop onto this page. Go look at the Bible. Try to read that motherfucker. Look at the density of the text in every single chapter, in every single way. Recall to yourself that there are two or three chapters in the Old Testament that are entirely devoted to family genealogy and detailed, detailed listings of members of families to the tune of thousands uh, in that book. So again, sorry, my commentary. I love this shit, obviously. Can't get enough of it. Along the way, the Bible scholars show how the Roman imperial cult, set to worship Caesar as a god, formed the basis for the Roman Catholic Church, and that some of the, some of the church's first saints were members of the Flavian court. Atwill also shows how the, quote, second coming of the Christ 
referred to a historical event that already occurred. So that's the thing. All these things are recorded in the Bible as prophecy, but then they were handed to the Jews of the time, written up by those who created the modern canon here, by those clerks, those clerics, those bishops, those cardinals, and importantly, the rulers who influenced what was allowed in the first place. This was all already in the past. Jesus lived and died 40 years before, and he predicted he would come again before those in his time had passed from this earth. And so another 40 years later, around by the time they're handing out these new versions of the books, everybody who was around when Jesus was alive was for sure in the ground, and all their grandkids, or kids at least, that next generation, were also more or less in the ground or on their way to in the ground. You follow? So they waited exactly the amount of time that they would need to backdated the narrative exactly how far they needed to and then present it to exactly the right new audience with just the right amount of muscle behind it. Let's never forget. They still were in charge. They were still running shit by the sword, too. And this was a way to bring these troublesome really literal, book-bound, and messianic Jews to heal, right? Hey, here's your fucking book. We fixed it. It's all updated now. And uh, you guys need to read this, because you've been doing it wrong. And if you don't, we're going to keep impaling you, hanging you, kicking your asses in town, generally treating you poorly, doing the whole nine yards to you until you get it. But you're going to get it this time, because this is the only book you've got. And we know you guys love your books. And it was written by your own priests. It was written ostensibly by Jews. <laughs> but these are the same people who created the Roman Catholic Church. So, that's about it on the synopsis. They, they tell you who's involved in the documentary, Joseph Atwill, and a cast of supporting uh, scholars, Robert Eisenman. John Hudson, Ken Humphreys, Rod Blackhurst, uh, Akraya S., D.M. Murdoch, and Timothy Freak. Um, I think it's a, a profoundly interesting documentary. They close with Christianity. Uh, this documentary not only gives us a revolutionary new understanding of the history the origins of Christianity, but shows how the political use of religion is still affecting our personal lives today. We currently live on the brink of an immense paradigm shift, and this modern time is very parallel to the era in which Christianity emerged. Studying this ancient era can give us the much-needed perspective for coming up with solutions to today's problems, so we can create the better world that we envision. So that's their message. We read the whole synopsis. We might as well read their last little message and pitch. The You can easily search Caesar's Messiah documentary on YouTube and, and find the, the whole movie. They have several supporting videos right here on their website that are probably outtakes and extra, like what would be uh, special features videos on a DVD back in the day, right? On a, on a home DVD collection. Um, but some cool expanded interviews that you know they show you 
cutscenes from the movie and then uh, at will and some of these others giving some uh, additional commentary around it um, so check that out caesarsmessiahdoc.com that's where we got that story today uh, I think it's once you watch that documentary and if you spend some time looking at these topics um, as I have for many many years now um, you know probably over 20 years of casually just loving the the multi-layered onion that is that that question like what's the real Christianity and what even is that um, who are these people and, and you know what was what was real and wasn't uh, I do firmly believe that you know a lot of the Bible was written uh, for well all of it was written for a reason every word of it was written for a reason every word of it that we have today was left in for a reason that in, in particular but when we look at in particular a lot of the Old Testament we see a lot of things that can be verified in the real world today you know even still with our with our eyes um, so we have a lot of ver verifiable historicity that's encoded in the Bible from day one and though there's also massive layers of metaphor, allegory, you know, uh, myths that are uh, woven in and encoded into the, um, in some cases, feels like characters, and in some cases feels like real historic people uh, that were in the Bible, but who, of course, are all put forward to us as historical real people you know maybe that's a great question that i don't know how much it get gets asked but how historical are so many of the other supporting members of the cast um of the new testament of the bible and as a whole um i'll get back to you on that yeah that's that's kind of my Prezzo on Jesus was potentially not a historical figure and was potentially created by I guess it was the Caesars and not the I was about to say the Jesuits because <laughs> somebody was referencing the Jesuits on another podcast the other day I can't remember which anyway um and they were saying they were butchering it, the poor guys. He was butchering the word. Anyway. I think it's one of the most interesting questions of Christianity. And let's say what side you end up on is one side or the other. Let's say you end up on that um, atheistic, uh, secular side and say, well, you know, I'm going to go with the academic uh, interpretation presented by Atwill and co here and say Jesus is you know kind of bullshit you guys he's he wasn't even real to begin with there there wasn't a Jesus before that there was messiahs they were Christs uh, Jesus is referred to by a lot of different names in the Bible um, names and like monikers sort of like labels that uh, describe him like the Christ like uh, the Messiah like the last Adam okay he was purported and presented as a perfect person. Uh, then, of course, we have the whole controversy of Mary Magdalene and uh, a wife and a supposed secret Jesus uh, bloodline. 
so there you go. So that might be a future episode that you know we've we've hinted at, we've chatted uh, around the edges of that by all means in the past here a little bit here and there, but by by no means have we really dug in on it. But I guess that would be the last last chapter to all this is here's at will and friends going pump the brakes jesus was fake and then there's of course the uh, other academics who are like mary magdalene was real and she was a lot more important than we think and you know here we have her referenced in some other apocryphal work you know as being super close to jesus etc higher than the other disciples it's a good time I guess it doesn't never really ends, does it? In terms of puzzling over it. I was gonna say, even if you come down on that secular side, does that negate the value of any of the lessons or all of the lessons or just some of the lessons that people say they learn from Jesus? Does it change the value of the lessons if you have learned them and keep them in your heart? Are they lessened somehow anyway? I don't know. Got to think about it some more, I guess. <laughs> All right, well, I was going to tell you about this horrible, horrible Spokane, Washington representative who's uh, under investigation right now for his insane white nationalist, uh, like, biblical evangelical manifesto. Um, but, you know, we're coming up on an hour. And I think I can save that one for next week. Um, check it out. You can you can look into that. Uh, the the short Google search on that one would probably be the biblical basis for war because that's the title of the manifesto. So um, we'll include him in a short story maybe next week on the show because um, he doesn't deserve much more time than that. I just hope they tank his campaign very quickly. I think a few backers have asked for their money back, but. Uh, wanted to give everybody, however, let's transition on out of uh, all of that and come back to the present time and the present date and the present world and uh, our greenhouse update in the backyard. So, you know, we're baked and awake here, uh, so I don't always spend a whole lot of time on the garden, but you'll, you'll always hear about the garden here and there. Uh, you can, if you love to garden, and we do veggie gardening, and I'm doing some perennials and stuff just for fun, um, and I want to get into, like, propagation of some of our ground cover and landscape plants, and in particular our rosemary and probably the lavender next um, that we already have going in reasonable amounts up in the front of the house. Um, in addition to everything else that we do, like our seasonal plantings and uh, the beginnings of a... a fruit orchard in the backyard um we keep chickens okay talk about that all the time uh and we're beekeepers so um which is really fun and i'm about to tell you a little bit about that super briefly as well but uh greenhouse update uh check out our instagram my instagram right now for at baked and awake baked underscore and underscore awake at instagram um for pictures of the greenhouse because i always fuck with the greenhouse and and spend time out there and, and post pics of that so 
Uh, we put some new shelving in there last weekend. Um, we have a little backyard harbor freight, like six by eight greenhouse that I built a footing for and put out on our patio. And it's our new favorite thing. Um, so much more fun than the broken hot tub that was sitting there for several years before. Um, so much more fun. Oh my God, so much more fun than a broken hot tub. It's ridiculous. Put some shelves in, got a dehumidifier running, and most excitingly, uh, through a inexpensive, like, Amazon-sourced, I know, I'm ashamed, I gotta work on breaking the uh, Amazon dependency big time, I really, really do, especially since there's like a grow shop right up the block from my house, um, but this thing was under 100 bucks, I think it was 80 or 90 bucks, and it's just a 600 watt LED, but it's like full spectrum LED and even has like two UV LEDs supposedly that are doing the UV, you know, like antibacterial, antimicrobial thing. This light and housing can be daisy chained together with others uh, just like it. So if I like it, I may get one more. And that's part of the reason why I didn't go bigger. Uh, then the 600 that I did pick up because I just wanted to check it out and see what the fit and finish looked like on these uh, units because they have, of course, 1,000 watt and 1,200 watt versions of these. And some of my better grower friends know that, you know, uh, more advanced light still uh, and even in the LED uh, realm can be much more natural looking. These are kind of spacey and Star Trek-y looking. Um, again, check the Baked and Awake Instagram out to see that. I'm sure... My wife will also be posting on our legit gardening account at Bluebird Farms, and that's also on Instagram. Definitely uh, follow that account as well if you're not already, because we're always posting garden content there, food preservation, you know, uh, plants from seed, things that we're trying around the, the house to make things work in sort of, you know, a baby, baby, wannabe, wish we knew how to do it better we're just doing our best uh, kind of homestead farm in the suburbs kind of way, right? Especially with the chickens and stuff, right? We got a couple of bunnies. They're super cute. So that's the thing. If you want to see the animals and the bees and stuff, go there. Um, I'm excited about the light, though. Check that out on my Instagram. I'll ask Nicole to post it on Bluebird Farms as well. I'm sure she'll, you know, be stoked to do that. Um, we have some Meyer lemons going in the greenhouse right now, so I'm, like, tripping how cool that is. Uh, we literally hand-pollinated that uh, plant to make sure that uh, the flowers all got pollinated. And I have a enormous volunteer cucumber that came up in that same pot that is doing its thing, and we're letting it go and see because <laughs> it's, it's got flowers on it now. So, um and there's a few other things in the greenhouse as well. And we're going to do some outdoor garden planting uh, for like garlic and kale uh, very soon and see how that goes. Because sometimes it gets rained out when we do the garlic in the winter. So, But we're going to try it up in one of the beds, which we've had some success with in the past. Oh, yeah. We also harvested honey. And I've tasted just a little bit of it. We haven't pulled all of it off the racks yet. Nicole just got a cool strainer for the honey. So there you go. There's again, one last reason to follow Bluebird Farms. Follow that and look for content coming in the next couple of days of us actually scraping the two racks that we pulled. We had some mites. So we had the bees treated for mites in the last few days. Um, I don't think it was anything poisonous or creepy that was uh, applied to them, but she also pulled two racks at the same time and uh, put into fresh racks for them because they have so much in there that they're working with 
a pretty significant surplus. So some people debate the uh, ethics of even beekeeping. You know, my vegan friends, I'm sure, might, you know, definitely differ with me on this. But the bees seem to be having the time of their lives here in the yard. And, you know, we don't mind that it's bee vomit uh, honey. It's fucking delicious bee vomit, I got to tell you. And I think it's great for us and great for you um, in terms of health benefits uh, to have it around and have it be part of your, you know, home sweetening package and seasoning package. And, yeah, they're one of our coolest things that are on the property. And my wife, Nicole, of course, was uh, the one who uh, initially said she wanted them. And I was really skeptical for the longest time. But in all the years we've had them, you know, I think everybody has been stung. But nobody's been stung that many times at all, (laughs) you know, like, and it's almost all been walking on the lawn barefoot when the poor bees are down there going after the clover, which we intentionally let go a little bit so that they can enjoy the clover flowers. You know, when you see clover honey on the side of a package, that's because those bees foraged on primarily clover, right? Our honey would probably best be characterized as a combination of clover honey and blackberry honey. There's a huge blackberry patch behind the house, not as big as it used to be, thankfully, but um, uh, in the next property over. And uh, they ate a ton of that. So blackberry honey, when you see that, a lot of times is a darker honey. And uh, that's what it appears to be in our racks as well. Uh, so we'll try to catch some good images of it as we, uh, harvest it and process it. We have to strain it through like a two tiered strainer and, uh, then go from there. And then I think we can start moving it into jars pretty much from there. And we would just call that like a raw, you know, raw honey. It's not really even barely filtered. It's just screened, you know, uh, for particulate and the wax, of course. So should be super fun. Hopefully not too, too messy. We think we got the right tools for it. So. Find that content at Bluebird Farms on Instagram and follow me if you're not already at baked underscore and underscore awake on Instagram. Finally, I want to let you know if I haven't already, and I don't think I've really mentioned it here on the podcast. um, If you have one of those weird pieces of talking furniture, an Amazon Alexa, and you're living in the future like that, uh, and you have tested out the flash briefing feature that I believe is you know, a good way to curate your own morning news feed. I just want to let you know, first off, that you have been able to add Baked and Awake as a uh, Alexa skill or flash briefing in your personal flash briefing for some time. That's the long-form podcast. But available soon, we will have the Baked and Awake news brief, which I plan to produce Monday through Friday, and it'll be near real-time cannabis industry headlines and updates and like a little tidbit on the awake side usually on the way out this will be a shorter format show this is going to be a under 10 minute format five to seven minutes is what we're doing right now and it'll be mostly powered by some you know i'll say it like some google alerts that i've got set up to come into my inbox based on some keywords on my usual favorite topics ai and crypto blockchain cannabis and marijuana you know related 
words. I think I've got one on like terpenes and one on CBD. So that's the plan for the Baked and Awake news brief. If you're using Alexa right now, I don't know where they're coming from, but I've got like a few people who are listening on Alexa. It's up over the last month or so uh, on the Baked and Awake Alexa skill. And I guess for some reason they call the apps and they call the, the you know, these things skills. So it's jargon that I'm not totally, totally uh, comfortable with yet. We'll, we'll see how it goes. But check it out. Uh, I'm in review in the Alexa developer portal for the Baked and Awake news brief. And I'm trying to get cleared on iTunes as well. So we'll push it, you know, to a few different destinations. But this content is intended, I'm creating it first and foremost for folks with Alexas. And uh, maybe you're getting one for Christmas in the house for a family Christmas present. I don't know why you would do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. If you're already listening to me here on the podcast, great. You made it. You're at the primary destination. But I am excited about the flash briefing. I am excited about the Baked and Awake news brief. It's going to be a fun and challenging way for me to stay even more current and even more productive um, in terms of uh, posting quality content and regularly. And hopefully it'll be a way for us to reach out to new people who make their way back to the long-form podcast uh, as well. Look for it, though. If you've got an Alexa, maybe ask for the Baked and Awake news brief a few times over the next week or so. I've already got episode one recorded and sitting in the queue, and I've got episode two and three partially built in, you know, in my recording software, um, ready to get, you know, post-edited and sent on out um, as soon as it gets approved. And I'm looking for that maybe today. Who knows? So excited about it, and I hope you guys are too. We're going to do even more with the show in the coming year. That's all I got for you for today. We're going to let that creepy congressman idiot go till next week. And uh, I want to thank my usual music provider, Auntie Luode, uh, for providing some background tracks to today's show. And uh, I'm stunned and amazed to have seen a post on Reddit like last night. I don't know what the heck, but it seems that the free music archive that I only recently discovered as another resource for royalty-free music for the podcast is going offline pretty soon, like to the tune of like November 9th pretty soon. So as of the date of this recording, that's only like four days away. So super puzzled about that, not sure what's happening there, except maybe it was a volunteer project and they can't fund it anymore. I don't know. Um, I I guess it might go to somebody else. Maybe it's going to be handed off um, and maybe it'll still exist in some form or other, but According to somebody from the Free Music Archive, it looks like they're kind of going offline. So anyway, not a big deal to anybody who's not a content creator um, for the most part right now, but a little bit of a bummer for me personally. Uh, So Free Music Archive, if you do pass away and we lose you to posterity, I'll be downloading a few uh, files over the next few days as I can here uh, feverishly. Uh, But thank you. And thank you to all the artists who have uh, been discovered through Free Music Archive up to this point, uh, and some of whom I certainly hope to find in your respective other digital homes and work with your music in the future. So 
yeah. R.I.P. Freemusicarchive.com. All right. Well, um, did I even manage to finish that doobie? Almost, but there is a little bit of it left. So, well, keyboard cat plays me out. I'll light it up one more time. Because it may be whatever o'clock in the morning around here while I'm coming at you. You know we're not teetotalers here at Baked and Awake. We stay ready so we don't have to get ready. And we smoke indica and do shit anyway. 